Well, amen. We are in week three of a summer series that we've called God, What God Wants, um, Pleasing God by Obeying or by Pursuing His Will. And uh, this morning, what we're going to do is consider the, what it means, what the will of God means. Um, I think implicit in the title of the series is that we have to understand what the will of God is if we're going to please God, because pleasing God is tied to His will. Remember, the subtitle of the series is Pleasing God by Pursuing His Will. So we need to understand what the will of the Lord is, which is what the words that Paul uses here in Ephesians 5, verse 17. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, this is not going to be an ordinary exposition of Ephesians 5. I'm not going to preach this passage at all. In fact, if you're curious what I think about this passage, I did preach it back in October 2015. It's on our church website. You can go see that specific passage if you want. But what I'm doing is using this concept of understanding what the will of the Lord is to basically teach from the scriptures what the will of God is in the entire Bible in terms of understanding what, what he means and what scripture means by the phrase, the will of the Lord. So verse 17 says, don't be foolish, understand what the will of the Lord is. And also in verse 10 Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So you see there, right? You see the, the juxtaposition of the will of God being understood and pleasing God being discerned. So I didn't, I, I want us to see and appreciate again, pleasing God is tied to understanding and knowing his will. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Now, since pleasing God is tied with obeying God's will, and God's will is not a simplistic matter in Scripture, we need to discern and understand what the Scriptures teach in order to navigate this issue. So I want us to discern, discern and understand what the will of the Lord means in Scripture. That's my goal this morning in our sermon, to understand the phrase, the will of the Lord, and what it means in Scripture. Now, as we read Scripture, we are going to encounter two specific ways in which God wills human events to happen. Theologians have sometimes called these two aspects of God's will His secret will and His revealed will. Other titles have been used like God's will of decree and God's will of desire. Those are going to be the phrases I'm going to use this morning. There's also been, been, been used the phrases God's plan and God's commands. There's, and then for more technical theology, there's preceptive and decretive. So we're just going to use the phrases decree and desire uh, in this morning's sermon. So we're going to look at the subject of God's will this morning under three headings. The first two concern God's will specifically revealed in Scripture, and the last is the questions that inevitably come up in light of that. So we're going to talk about God's will of decree, God's will of desire, and God's will of direction. Now let's start with God's will of decree. I'm going to show you several Scriptures this morning that show you that the phrase God's will or the will of God refers to His eternal plan, some of which we know, a lot of which we don't. So one author has stated regarding God's will of decree the following. He says, God's secret will 
is that attribute of God by which he has determined what he will do. It's that attribute of God by which he has determined what he will do. Now, for us as humans, the future is unknown. But for God, nothing is unknown. And nothing comes as a surprise. It's a secret to us, but it's not a secret to God. In fact, nothing that ever happens in one sense, falls outside of the predetermined plan of God. Now let me say it a different way. Everything that ends up happening in human history is within the decreed secret will of God. God's secret will is his all-encompassing divine purpose according to, what, to which he foreordains whatever comes to pass. Now let's look at the scriptures, a few of them. I believe they'll be on the screen behind you. I'm going to try to, I tried to consolidate them because we're going to look at a lot and I don't want to have to waste time necessarily turning to all these passages. So we find the secret will of God or the, decree, the decretive will of God all throughout the scriptures. Just consider these passages. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. God says to the prophet Isaiah, I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Ephesians 1.11, Paul picking up on this idea when he writes to the church at Ephesus says, In him, that is in Christ, we are also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Again, Job 42.2, Job at the end of his book, God says the following, uh, speaks to Job in chapter 40 through 42, and Job responds by saying, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose or willing of yours can be thwarted. Daniel 4, verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? One more, Isaiah, or Psalm 115, verse 3. But our God is in the heavens, he does whatever he pleases. So again, this is just underscoring that Scripture all over the place, almost in every single book of the Bible, underscores the reality that God has a will that he is accomplishing in the world. And we call it his will of decree. Whatever he determines that he will do, he will do. Sometimes he makes that will known to us, oftentimes he does not. So what should be the appropriate response to God's decretive will in our lives? Well, we don't go searching it out. In fact, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, the things revealed belong to us. So it's not our business to know everything that God knows. It's our business to concern ourselves with everything he's revealed, which we'll get to in a moment. Nevertheless, God reveals that there are things that he knows that we don't know. And so he's revealed that about himself. So to what purpose has he revealed that self? Or that purpose? Well, lots of purposes, but I just want to give us one. He's given it so that we would rest and trust him. That's why he's given it. He's given it for Romans 8.28 purposes, right? What does Romans 8.28 say? We know this. It's a favorite verse of many of us. For we have been called according to God's purpose. That, any, that he, we know that he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Well, how do we know that God works all things together for our good? Because he works in and through all things. <laughs> That's why we rest in Romans 8.28, because God has a will of decree that can't be thwarted. And this should remove worry from our lives. And it should put us at peace as we seek the desired and directed leading of the Lord. 
God sovereignly decrees and designs circumstances so that we end up exactly where he wants us to be, even if we don't have any conscious part in getting there. For example, think of Acts 16. Paul and Silas found themselves in jail, and the result was the salvation of a jailer in his household. Now, that was not Paul's plan, but that was God's plan. God does this often, putting us in places that we don't plan or decide to be. Just think of our whole sermon series through the life of Joseph. That's one illustration after another of God accomplishing his will in a way that totally baffles oftentimes Joseph, but he trusts God anyway. This means that we make plans, but we make them loosely. (laughs) James chapter 4 Verse 13, as we've already been reminded this morning, even as Justin was sharing about the latest regarding VBS, this is true now as well. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Indeed, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Now, why do we say if the Lord wills? Because unless God wills it, it won't happen. Unless it's it's a part of his predetermined plan, it won't take place. So that is God's will of decree. We could say a lot more about that, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to leave it there. Secondly, God's will of desire. God's will of desire. Now, God has a secret will of decree, like we've just explored, by which he will accomplish everything he intends to accomplish. He sovereignly rules the creation he has made. But God also has a revealed will that, on the other hand, is what he tells us to do. So just as God's will of decree can be defined as the secret will of God by which he has determined what he will do, so the revealed or desired will of God is that attribute by which he tells us what to do. So he has what he's going to do, and then he tells us what we are to do. Now, God's revealed will is clearly spelled out in Scripture as well. Let me give you uh, five quick verses. John 7, 17. Whoever chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God and whether I speak on my own, Jesus says. Wait, how can we do God's secret will? Well, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the revealed will of God. So I want you to see the Bible speaks in both of these ways. Another text, Matthew 12, 50. Whoever does the will of my Father, Jesus says, in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Wait, we can't know the will of God in heaven. Yes, we can, if he reveals it, if he tells us. 1 John 2, 17. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Again, notice the will of God being tied to pleasing God. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. One more, Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So God has obviously a revealed will that he expects us to obey. Now, for the most part, we shouldn't worry about God's secret or decretive will, but rather we should focus our attention on what he has revealed, his revealed will, which is why it's revealed, so that we can understand it and obey it. 
I think of Acts chapter 1. Remember the disciples were talking to Jesus after his resurrection and they wanted to know if it was at this time that Jesus was going to restore the kingdom? And what does he tell them? He wanted, they, well, they wanted to know if Jesus was about to restore the kingdom to Israel, presumably taking it back from the Romans. And what did Jesus inform them about? Well, he says in Acts 1, verses 7 and 8, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses. So he says, in other words, it's not your concern when I'm going to restore the kingdom or when I'm coming back. Your job's to preach the gospel, <laughs> to get out and share this message with others. So we could say that in that passage is both the will of decree and the will of desire, right? There's both. There's the Father has determined by his own intent and plan what he's going to do. Now you are to be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you with power, and you're to go out and share the gospel. So in other words, Jesus says essentially, don't worry about God's will of decree. Just be ready to obey his will of desire. So our primary concern should always be obedience to what we know and what he has revealed. Now, what should we think about these two wills? The will of desire and the will, or the will of decree and the will of desire. We call this compatibilism. In other words, what, what it sounds to us when we hear things like this, oftentimes like contradictory, but it's not. Things are completely compatible with God's decrees alongside what he has revealed with his desires. Now, let's think about this for a little bit. We have to reckon with this desire, and this is essential for us understanding God's will in Scripture. You have to understand this reality. So hang on with me, and, uh, and I'm going to give us some illustrations of it in a moment. But let me say this up front. God sometimes decrees what he doesn't perceptively approve. Let me say that again. God sometimes decrees what he doesn't preceptively approve. Now, preceptively, I mean what he's revealed, okay? God sometimes decrees sin, that sin take place. And he never, from his revealed will, desires sin to take place. But, decretively, he allows it to happen. Now, God's will of desire is sometimes thwarted because he has one of his desires, namely his will of decree, given precedence over that desire. John Frame, theologian, puts it this way. He says, God does not intend to bring about everything he values, but he never fails to bring about everything he intends. Let me say that again. This is so critical for understanding why God doesn't intervene in certain situations in Scripture. God does not intend to bring about everything he values, which would be revealed in his, will, in his will of desire. But he never fails to bring about what he intends. In other words, God is often pleased to ordain his own revealed displeasure. Now, I know that's a lot, but I'm going to give you some, an example that I think will clear up very, very easily. And that is the cross. Okay? Think about the cross. This is the best example of God revealing or God not intending to bring about everything he values, but never failing to bring about what he intends. In other words, ordaining for his own greater purposes, his own temporary revealed displeasure. Now, does God hate murder? 
Has God revealed in Scripture that murder is wrong? Yes. Then why did he let his son be killed? It's against, it's, it's wrong, according to him. Doesn't he value life? Of course he does. But he had a higher purpose in doing it. Remember Acts chapter 2, verse 22 and 23, and Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. Here we see that in some sense God willed the delivering up of his son, while in another sense he did not will it because it was a sinful thing for the executioners to do. As John Piper explains, quote, Herod's contempt for Jesus, Pilate's spineless expediency, and the Jews' cries of crucify him, crucify him, and the Gentile soldiers' mockery were all sinful attitudes and deeds. Yet, in Acts 4, 27 and 28, Luke expressly says his understanding of the sovereignty of God in these acts by recording the prayer of the Jerusalem saints when, they were, when it says the following, Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you did anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Acts 4, 27 and 28. So, Herod, Pilate, the soldiers, the Jewish crowds, lifted their hand to rebel against the Most High God, only to find that their rebellion was unwitting and sinful service to the inscrutable designs of God. Therefore, we know that it was not the desired will of God that Judas and Pilate and Herod and the Gentile soldiers and the Jewish crowds disobey the moral law of God by sinning in delivering Jesus up to be crucified, but we also know that it was the decree, and in that sense the will of God, that this come to pass. Therefore, we know that God in some sense wills what he does not will in another sense. So what, we, what God has eternally decreed will occur, but it may be opposite of what he in Scripture says should not occur. Okay? So that's how we understand God's will of decree and God's will of desire in Scripture. One more example that might help with this. The Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was on a mission, right? He knew why he came into the world. It was to lay his life down for us. He said in John chapter 4, verse 34, My food's to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He said in John 1, 29, that his mission was nothing less than offering himself as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. Also in John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18, he said that he wasn't coerced to do this, but he did this wholeheartedly because he desired to complete the Father's mission of his own initiative. So indeed, as the hour approached, Jesus unequivocally affirmed his fixed determination to see the mission through. Remember in John chapter 12, verse 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, for this purpose I have come to this hour. Yet, just a few days later, and hours before his trial and crucifixion, the Lord Jesus appears to sing a different tune. Faced with the imminent prospect of drinking the cup of God's wrath, Jesus expresses what at first seems like a mutually exclusive desire. In dead earnest prayer, he cries aloud in Gethsemane, the following, Matthew 26, verse 39. My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So on the one hand, 
Jesus knows the Father's decreed purpose and wants to fulfill it, and yet on the other hand, Jesus does not want to drain the cup of God's wrath, even though he's been called for this purpose. Contradiction? Schizophrenia? Cowardice? God forbid. God forbid. The tension requires careful thought. Now, let me try to put it in, a, in an understandable form for us. First, it's wholly agreeable with God's will of desire that a perfectly holy and sinless man should desire exemption from God's wrath. Is that not a perfectly legitimate desire? He's holy and innocent. He shouldn't, want to, he shouldn't have to bear God's wrath. That's completely consistent with God's revealed will that no innocent person should be punished. But when Jesus, desired, when Jesus desired not to drink the cup of God's wrath, he was viewing that object as a thing in itself, isolated from the fabric of God's overall plan of history. He was responding as an innocent human being who was sympathizing with us in our suffering. Second, Jesus' desire to avoid God's wrath is consistent with Jesus' simultaneous desire to suffer God's wrath when each desire is contextually situated. In other words, his desire not to drink the cup cannot be situated in relation to God's will of decree. He wanted to do God's will of decree. He said it. Father, save me from this hour? No, for this purpose I've come to this hour. Yet, that would, that would be a contradiction if he was opposed to God's will of decree. But he's not opposed to God's will of decree. Therefore, Jesus' strong desire not to drink the cup must be viewed intrinsically in relation to God's moral requirements as revealed in his will of desire. So we may, might illustrate it the following way. Here's the major premise. Jesus desires to drink the cup of the Father's will, drink the cup of God's wrath according to God's will of decree. But Jesus does not desire to drink the cup of God's wrath which is revealed in his will of desire. But the two premises, the two desires, are not univocal. That's it, they don't have the same meaning. But each are circumstantially situated within its own conceptual context. So the conclusion is Jesus desires to drink the cup, and his desire not to drink the cup are not logically contradictory. They're operating according to God's two wills, his will of decree and his will of desire. Now, I know a lot more could be said about that, but I'm going to move on, and then we're going to come back in a moment um, to kind of wrapping this up. But I want to spend the rest of our time talking about some questions that might arise from that, namely concerning God's will of direction. So we've talked about that God has a will of decree by which he will bring about everything that he plans to intend, and God has a revealed will of desire that he has for us as his creatures and especially as his people for what he commands us to do. Now, how should we think about direction and how he guides us? Well, sometimes, and we see this in scripture, God does provide very clear direction via declaration to his people. He simply declares to us what we should do, and it's always in accordance with what he decreed. Think of just Acts chapter 8, verse 26. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go south to the road that ascends from Jerusalem to Gaza. <laughs> that's, that's where God brings his will of desire and his will of decree together and just speaks it to Philip, says, Go do this. This is what I want. And, of course, Philip obeys, and the Ethiopian eunuch is saved and baptized. 
So what happens? Acts chapter 8, verse 29, the Spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. Now, that's convenient, and uh, would that God did that more, but actually I'm going to get into the point that we shouldn't be expecting that kind of direct revelation um, in these days, but not to say that God can at times do such things. But I would argue that this is extremely rare, it's extremely unique in, in redemptive history, and it's the least common means of God's leading in our lives. It just doesn't happen all that often in Scripture. If you read the totality of Scripture, oftentimes God is speaking to people in these kind of definitive, audible ways at key moments in redemptive history. I mean, this is when, 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 John, or when the Holy Spirit, the angel of the Lord, speaks to Philip here in Acts 8. What's going on? There's a significant redemptive historical shift taking place. The gospel's going to the Gentiles. It's going to the nations and so God is more audibly speaking through his Holy Spirit in this particular redemptive situation. So we always have to situate our interpretation of Scripture in the larger historical context of what God's doing in those times and why he's doing it that way. So while God does direct us as his people, the question arises, does he have some sort of secret will of direction that he expects us to figure out before we do anything? Does he expect us to kind of crawl up into his eternal counsels and pull back the curtain and peek in and say, God, tell me what you want me to do? Is that the way God has structured human life? Well, the answer clearly to that is no. Yes, God does have a specific plan for all of our lives. It began at a certain point, it will end at a certain point, and it's going to be carried out. All his will for us will be accomplished in a decretive sense. And yet, we can be assured because of that that he's going to work all things together for good in our lives. But while we are free to ask God for wisdom, and we should and we must, God does not have, nor does he burden us with the task of finding out his decretive will ahead of time as direction for our lives. God does have a specific plan for our lives, but it is not one that he expects us to figure out before we make any and every decision we make. Here's what Kevin DeYoung says about that. And some of you all need to hear this, especially younger guys and girls who are thinking about your future and what, am I, what job and where should I go to school and who should I marry and where should I live and, I mean, what does God want me to do? So listen to this quote. Obsessing over the future is not how God wants us to live because showing us the future is not God's way. We walk by faith and not by sight. Anyway, his way is to speak to us in the scriptures and transform us by the renewing of our minds. His way is not a crystal ball. His way is wisdom. We should stop looking for God to reveal his future to us and remove all risks from our lives. See, that's really why we want to know it, so we can control things. But God says, ah, 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 not that way. We should start looking to God, his character and promises, and thereby have confidence to take risk for his namesake. God's all-knowing and all-powerful. He's planned out and works out every detail of our lives, the joyous days and the difficult, all for our good. Because we have confidence in God's will of decree, we can radically commit ourselves to his will of desire without fretting over a hidden will of direction. Say that one more time. Because we have confidence... In God's will of decree that everything that he has ordained for our lives is going to come to pass, we don't, we're never going to thwart it. We can radically commit ourselves to his will of desire 
without fretting over a hidden will of direction. Fretting, brothers and sisters, over a hidden will of direction is not what God wants. But he still wants us to seek him for wisdom. He still wants us to exercise discernment. And he still wants us to pray. All right? So it's not this non-relational thing. Okay? Sometimes we hear, you know, maybe people who emphasize strongly God's will of decree saying, well, you know, God's going to accomplish everything he's going to accomplish, so just, you know, do what he told you to do in, his, in the Bible and don't worry about anything else. And that has really good, noble intentions behind it, but it removes all the relational aspect out of our relationship with God. It's like, well, what has he told you in the Bible? Read it and do it. But it's not like God has just dropped the book and he, every time we come to him in prayer, he says, read the book. Why are you talking to me about this? Read the book. Didn't I tell you? Did you know that he's told us a lot of stuff? We're going to consider most of the rest of this series is going to be focused on the revealed, desired will of God because that's what we anchor our lives to. We do what he's told us to do. But he wants us to do what he's told us to do in dependence on him, with discernment. Why does Paul say in Ephesians 5, try to understand the will of the Lord. Don't be foolish. Understand the will of God. Try to discern what's pleasing to him. Why does he tell us to do that? Why does the writer to the Hebrews say to the mature who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil? Or why does he say in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable, that is pleasing and perfect. So, there's this dynamic relationship revealed in Scripture, too, to walking in the will of God. So we're not to be paralyzed and fret over our decisions, but neither are we to be presumptuous. So here's the two extremes I'm trying to avoid. I'm trying to avoid prideful presumption on the one hand and paralyzed or perplexed paralysis on the other hand. Okay? On the one hand, is just this prideful presumption will... God hasn't revealed a whole lot of stuff in the scriptures. He's given us a ton of freedom to make those decisions. I'm just going to go do what I want to do. I'm not even going to seek him about it. Well, that's prideful presumption. But on the other hand, oh, I don't know what to do with my life. I mean, God hasn't revealed it. I mean, what am I supposed to do? I'm just, uh, uh. see, that's perplexed paralysis, neither of which is an appropriate response to God's will. God has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17. All scripture is given by or inspiration of God that the man of God, include the woman of God, may be, may be equipped for every good purpose. God has given us a sufficient word to live a Christian life. But he also desires us to seek him for wisdom, to exercise discernment, and to pray to him. So, let's walk through that these last 10 minutes or so. How do we navigate that space? Pastor Mark, that's a tad bit subjective. That's dangerous. You're opening the Pandora's box to people doing all kinds of crazy stuff. No, I'm not. No, I hope not after I give you these things. All right, I just want you to, I want to, I want to show you different examples in Scripture of how we navigate this space between God's clearly revealed will of desire, like thou shalt not murder, do not commit sexual immorality, be sanctified, be saved, all those clear will of command, kind of things, and the space in between. So first of all, this is what wisdom looks like. This is how wisdom navigates life. One, evaluate the action. We evaluate it. 
Is it morally good according to God's word? According to the general principles of God's word, is it morally good? Two, we observe our attitude. Proverbs 21, 12, every, man, every way of man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. We have to check ourselves. It's always going to look good to us most of the time. But we have to say, okay, the Lord's weighing my heart here. The Lord knows the heart. Three, we've got to check our motives. Matthew 6, 1 and 2, beware of practicing your righteousness before people, other people to be seen by them. Number four, we need to consider the results. 1 Corinthians 14, 26, let all things be done for building up. So we always want to make decisions based on what's going to build up the people of God. Five, gather the information. In addition to what's revealed in Scripture, we should study the situation. Think of Luke 14, 28 through 32. For instance, if you're going to build a house or start a business or enter into this venture, what's, a, what's wisdom dictate? Count the cost. Make sure you can afford it. Right? Luke 14, 28, 32. For which of you built, desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? Also, know your calling. Romans 12, 3. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has designed. God hasn't designed you to fix every problem in the world. We need to know what our specific calling is according to our gifting and opportunities and all that to make the right decisions. Also, we need to get wise counsel, right? Proverbs eleven four: In an abundance of counselors, there's safety. What do my godly brothers and sisters think about this? What do they think about this decision? We also need to look at our circumstances. Matthew ten fourteen: If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Jesus didn't always expect his disciples just to keep suffering persecution. Sometimes it's wise to flee it. Sometimes it's wise to stay. The Bible reveals both. It takes wisdom to know the difference. 1 Corinthians 16, I will stay in Ephesus for a wide door of effective work has opened for me, and there are many adversaries. (laughs) So on the one hand, if they don't receive it, leave. On the other hand, if they don't receive it, stay. Well, it depends on the context and what what God is leading in those moments and what the circumstances are dictating. 2 Corinthians 2, 12 and 13, when I came to Troas, even though a door was open for me, I took leave of them and went to Macedonia. Sometimes Paul walks through open doors, sometimes he doesn't. He doesn't. He just doesn't. And so it's not as clear-cut all the time. Also, follow your conscience. Acts 24, verse 16, I always take pains to have a clear conscience before both God and man. Acts 15, 28, do you know how they made decisions in Acts chapter 15 regarding the Jerusalem council and that big division over justification and the law of God? They did, quote, what seemed good. (laughs) Don't you love the realist? I love how realistic the Bible is. They looked at the situation, seemed good to us. Seemed good. Sometimes we make decisions because it seems good. Examine your heart, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must give what he's decided in his heart to give. 2 Corinthians 8, 16. God put it into the heart of Titus, the same earnest care. Now see, there's an overlap between God's will of decree and God's will of desire. Sometimes he puts his decree, his decree in, a, in the hearts of his people. He inclines his people to do what he desires of them to do. It's a beautiful thing. And it's always consistent with his will of desire. 1 Timothy 3.1, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer. 1 Corinthians 7.39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. 
Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Also, we measure the human spirit. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul says, when I came to Troas, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I didn't find my brother Titus there, so I left. And then we need to pay attention to what the Holy Spirit is doing. Acts 16, verse 6 and 7, as they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, and when they came to Mysa, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. See, the Spirit closes doors. And say, the Spirit's not giving us access here. I mean, we, what do we do? Well, we, we walk by the Spirit. We're led by the Spirit. We keep in step with the Spirit. Now, an objection comes, common objection, which is, this can be misleading to people. Subjective impressions can mislead people. And brothers and sisters, it is certainly possible for people to make mistakes in the area of subjective guidance. But the teaching of the Bible must always have the highest priority, what's clearly revealed in Scripture. And this is coming from a cessationist. Christians can make the mistake of putting too much emphasis on guidance from subjective impressions. But I'm also concerned about another kind of mistake, which is the mistake of teaching people not to pray or pay attention to what God is doing about what decisions to make. This cannot be right because God has made us whole persons, including a conscience, a heart, a human spirit, and has given us the ability to relate to him through the, the, the word-guided presence of the Holy Spirit. So in response to the objection that subjective impressions can mislead people, we have to recognize that we can also be misled regarding the more objective factors of guidance. For instance, we can be misled by misunderstanding the teachings of Scripture, by wrongly evaluating ourselves and our abilities, by depending on wrong information about a situation. We can be misled by wrongfully interpreting past experience. And certainly we can be misled by sermons. I hope not this one. And by the advice from others. Books and articles can mislead us as well. And sometimes the historical or the tradition of the church has made mistakes. So therefore, I don't find the objection that subjective impressions might mislead us to be convincing reason not to consider them. And I must reemphasize that we should never follow any of these subjective impressions to obey or to disobey the clear teachings of Scripture. So I think John Piper gives us a helpful grid when he says this, and then we're going to give three applications and conclude. Piper says, The Bible does not tell you which person to marry or which car to drive or whether to own a home or where to take your vacation, what cell phone plan to buy or which brand of orange juice to drink or a thousand other choices you must make. What is necessary is that we have a renewed mind that is so shaped and so governed by the revealed will of God in the Bible that we see and assess all relevant factors with the mind of Christ and discern what God is calling us to do. This is very different from constantly trying to hear God's voice saying, do this and do that. People who try to lead their lives by hearing voices are not in sync with Romans 12 too. There is a world of difference between praying and laboring for a renewed mind that discerns how to apply God's word on the one hand and the habit of asking God to give you new revelation of what to do on the other hand. Divination does not require transformation. God's aim is a new mind, a new way of thinking and judging, not just new information. His aim is that we be transformed, sanctified, freed by the truth of his revealed word. End quote. I think it's a good balancing statement. 
Don't expect audible voices, but in accordance with his revealed word, we should be operating out of discernment and wisdom. Now, three conclusions. Why has God set it up this way? Why has God revealed? Well, at one level, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Just what scripture reveals. But there are three reasons I I surmise that, that, that he's set it up this way. First of all, Knowing God's will is focused on a person, not just precepts. David Platt says, His ultimate concern is not to get you or me from point A to point B along the quickest, easiest, smoothest, clearest route possible. Instead, his ultimate concern is that you and I would know him deeply as we trust him more completely. You see, we're called to a relationship with Jesus. We're called to his person, not his drills. He's a savior more than a sergeant. Platt writes, the goal of the disciple of Jesus then is not to answer the question, what is God's will for my life? The goal instead is to walk in God's will on a moment-by-moment, day-by-day basis. The point is to walk with Jesus. God wants us. God has withheld certain things from us so that we will walk with him. That's reason. Second, knowing God's will is concerned with transformation, not just information. Sam Alberry says, this is our relationship to God's will. Not that he emails a day briefing of what we're to do each day, but that he gradually renews our minds, changing the way they work, giving us the capacity to discern his will without moment-by-moment direct updates. This is hugely dignifying. God is not telling us what to think at every moment, but how to think. He's rarely telling us what decision to make, but teaching us how to make decisions. This may not be as easy as simply being told what to do or where to go, but surely it's far more rewarding. God is training us to not need angels delivering instructions. He's giving us far more, the increasing capability by His Spirit who lives in us to think like He does, to have our minds rebooted with His new operating system. God is not merely handing us a fish when we need to eat. He's teaching us how to feed ourselves. During the process of learning how to feed ourselves, however, God's will often seems frustratingly vague and nonspecific. The difficulty is part of the design. And finally, number three, knowing God's will is intended to conceal, not just reveal. Listen, Proverbs 25, 2, it's the glory of God to conceal things. He loves it because it's his glory to do so. His wisdom and knowledge are unfathomably deep. His judgments are unsearchable. His ways are inscrutable. Considering all the factors in play in the universe, it's likely no exaggeration that there are trillions of reasons for why God directs the course of our lives. And he prefers to carry out his purposes in ways that confound, surprise, and humble humans, angels, and demons. John Bloom says, There is a tremendous glory that God displays with, without tipping his hand to us in advance. We suddenly recognize that he was working his will all along when we couldn't see it. And he's also merciful to withhold information from us that he knows we aren't ready to know, even if we think we really want to. You as a parent know that about your kids, right? So in conclusion, I want to conclude by saying, let's not make this overly complicated. Okay? I do not think that God wants this decision-making process to seem impossible for Christians to follow regularly or so complicated that they're discouraged by it. Listen, this is what God wants you to do. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives us all generously without fault and it will be given to him. 
in the actual course of our lives, all these factors can be taken into account quite quickly in most situations. We don't have to go through that 12-point list I gave you. Sometimes even instantly and instinctively without consciously considering each of these factors. Yet in other situations, we have to thoughtfully consider the different dimensions and factors that will provide much greater insight and discernment. And in this way, God begins answering the prayer of Philippians 1, 9, and 10 in our lives. That is, he causes us to increase in knowledge and all discernment so that we might approve what is excellent. It's part of his revealed will that we learn to trust his will of decree and exercise tough, hard-won discernment along the way. May God give us wisdom and help to do that. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to you for all that you have revealed in your word about your will. We've just scratched the surface, but we trust that in this time together this morning as we've thought about how you in your will of decree govern all things, but nevertheless have revealed in your word what you desire of us. We pray that we would embrace wholeheartedly that will of desire and lean into it and live it out with all of our might, knowing that we will sin, knowing that we will stumble, knowing that we will struggle, but thankful that you have provided a Savior who drank the cup of God's wrath for us so that we are set free from being paralyzed, but we are known as adopted, forgiven children of God if we've turned from our sins, if we're turning from our sin, if we're trusting in Jesus Christ alone. We are yours. And then you train us in the school of wisdom to learn how to walk with you hand in hand during our lives. Thank you that Romans 8.28 is true. Thank you that you will work all things for good to those who love you and are called according to your, your purpose. Help us in the meantime to obey your revealed will and to walk in wisdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together.